If you'll stay standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning comes from the end of Galatians 2, starting in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat this morning, I'm excited to be with you. I feel like we've got lots of evidences of God's grace this morning. Being able to have some of our big kids uh, up here, uh, just participating in our life as a body. I'm reminded also just by uh, uh, little noises here and there, uh, all these kids that God has given us. What a blessing. And I want you to know, if you're a parent and you're like, man, my kids are making a lot of noise that's what body life is all about. Your kids are welcome here. Even when there's little noises and things like that, City Church is a place for families. And so I just want you to know that. That's our expectation here. So if you're a mom that's like dealing with a little bit of that like, oh, I didn't get out quick enough or anything like that, that just couldn't be farther from the truth. We want you to know that you and your kids are welcome here. Uh, also just uh, evidence of God's grace. Uh, that last song that we sang uh, was one that was written in-house by Andrew Sullivan. And uh, just so excited that uh, after 14 years as a church, like our church is like contributing to like even just uh, singing and melody and song. And uh, that's been a part of what we've wanted for a really long time. So I just feel like we have grace upon grace. If you would, uh, stick with me in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Uh, that's where we're going to be here this morning. Our goal is to wring out that scripture and to get to the marrow of it, for us to understand and worship in the midst of God speaking to us. But before we get there, I kind of wanted to introduce uh, this uh, topic this morning, the thing that we're going to learn just by, uh, 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 by way of personal confession almost. Uh, the other night, one of our beloved uh, members, uh, Stephanie Selman, was over at our house and we were sharing a meal. And I don't remember precisely how it all came about, but we were talking about what we were like when we were younger. And uh, I was a weird kid. Uh, just for anybody who had any doubts about that, I just want to clear that up strange kid. And so in this question of like uh, what we were like as a child, like my wife knew me like when we were in high school. And so Stephanie asked, what was Chris like? And she goes, Chris has always been a very serious person. So that was the first thing that my wife said about me. It wasn't like, oh, I noticed how like just, you know, beautiful he was and like all of these sorts of things. It was like Chris was a very serious person, which is absolutely true. If you had known me as a kid, you would have known that I was very serious. Um, I, uh, I wasn't good at being a kid particularly. Um, I <clears throat> always envied the carefree, those people that were just in, uh, uh, <clears throat> in my circles that just tended to like love life, get after it, be silly. I always envied those people, but not quite as much as I uh, coveted like the freedom of adulthood. I was always kind of aimed at adulthood. So um, I, I was pretty independent. My 
parents can tell you that. Uh, from a really early age, I was like, uh, I want to work. Like, uh, 14 years old, I'm going to get a job at the, you know, local golf course, doing all kinds of insane things for very low wages. I wanted to work. That was what I wanted to do. I had a very low tolerance for silliness. And so I just was a kid that was kind of aimed at being an adult. I remember even uh, being overseas, uh, you know, uh, in this like small community of ex, uh, expats that was there in Taiwan from five till 10. And I just remember relating more with the adults that were like a captive audience in this like community, more even than their kids. So. That's the kind of person that I was. I was really jealous to kind of be an adult, and I was just dying to get out there and live. I was dying to live. That's what I wanted to do, and I thought that I was going to find that in adulthood. I think we'll, we'll see. Jury's still out. I don't know. But here's what I know. I know that even though I was dying to get out there, um, there's still a question in my mind. There's probably still a question in lots of our minds, even as adults. How do we truly live? Even though I wanted to get out there and live, how do we truly live? And every religion, every person in this world has some kind of answer to that question. What is the good life? What is a meaningful life? What does it mean to actually get out there and live? What does it mean to have an eternal life? And what Galatians chapter 2 verses 17 through 21 does is pulls back the veil. It pulls back the veil on what it means to die and what it means to live. And so what we're going to discover this morning is something very simple. I'd love for you to even write it down if you're a note taker. You will either live to die or you will die to live. <clears throat> Everybody in this world is either going to live to die or they're going to die to live. Now that's a little cryptic. We're going to actually try to get there by asking three questions of the sermon text this morning. We're going to ask these three questions and then after we've tried to do our best to kind of uh, discover something about what God has for us here, we're going to try to put it back together in the gospel. But here are the three questions that allow us to know what it is to live to die or to die to live. The first thing that we want to ask of this text is what is the charge? What is the charge? That'll make a little bit more sense here in just a minute. What is the charge is the first question that we want to get after, that we want to kind of get underneath. The second is, what is Paul's rebuttal to that charge? What is his rebuttal to that charge? And the third thing that we're going to talk about is, what is the deadly purpose of the gospel? What is the deadly purpose of the gospel? Paul has spent the last two chapters of his letter to the Galatians essentially confronting these men that last week and the week before we started calling Judaizers. Now that's a weird word. Essentially these were people that were from uh, Judah that had come into uh, the region of Galatia and started teaching about the law of God and trying to attach it in with Christianity. Okay, so he's been confronting these Judaizers, and what he's been trying to get at and get kind of underneath is reminding the Galatians about grace that they have received through faith. These false teachers were trying to get these new converts in Christianity, the Galatians, the Gentiles that were there in these cities, to obey the Old Testament law. And, and Paul goes on to even say to these people that these false teachers have come in amongst you to spy out your freedom. They've come in as spies. 
They're not here on a friendly mission. They're coming here to spy out something very particular, and it's your freedom that you have in Christ. And what they're wanting to do is spy out that freedom so that they can introduce law to the gospel so that you can be enslaved. These false teachers are spying out the freedom to enslave people. Paul is unrelenting in his message to the Christians. Whether Jew or Gentile, he is unrelenting in his message to Christians that they are not to go after the law, but they are freed by faith. And that's precisely why we've entitled this sermon series, Freed by Faith. We want for us to know, Paul wants for us to know, God wants for us to know that we are freed by faith. So the first question this morning is, what is the charge? Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 is admittedly hard to interpret. So I want to teach you a little bit about how I go about studying the scriptures. Sound good? My, my kids and I, we're doing this over uh, at the end of dinner every night. We're taking out a copy of Scripture. We're going through a book of the Bible. And I'm going through the process of teaching them how I study Scripture. So verse 17, the first thing we're going to do is read. It's hard to study something that you don't read. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. That's the verse that we're trying to uh, get at this morning. Okay, so we've read it. The second thing that I want to do is make some observations. The third thing that I want to do is ask some interpretive questions of this text. So in observing this, we see that Paul is in an endeavor. He's in this endeavor, this journey to be justified in Christ. Now, he's already been really specific about what he expects to justify him in Christ, and it's faith. You'll know that from previous weeks. He's been talking all about faith. So, when we look at this, we see that Paul is in in an endeavor to be justified in faith. But if in that journey, we too were found to be in in sin, or we were found to be sinners... I want to pause there and notice that he's gone from talking in the singular to talking in the plural. We too, who is we? We are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So here are the observations that we've made so far. First, to be justified in faith is something about being justified, uh, justified in Christ. The second is that we too, so there's plural, were found to be sinners is Christ then a servant of sin? That's a very cryptic passage. Here are the two questions that I want to ask of this passage. What does he mean by we two, and what does he mean to be found as sinners, found to be sinners? This flows back to an argument that's uh, been really at works in Paul's writing here since verse 15. He's saying, about him and Peter, so we've got some answer there to who is the we. We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. That's, that, that's not easy to kind of understand on the surface. Paul is saying, hey, you and me, Peter, we were born as Jews in this world. We were followers of the law. We knew the ceremonial law. He's even talked earlier in chapter 1 about how he was a Pharisee a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He loved the law. And here he's talking about him and Peter being Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's interesting. 
Because here's the man who says that he's been sent with the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, to the uncircumcised. Those are the words that he's already used in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, to tell us about what he is doing. So why here is he talking about him and Peter being good Jews, and then these Gentiles being sinners? The we in verses 15 and 17 are the same. The Paul and Peter who are Jews that observe the Levitical law, observe the ceremonial law, but then he talks about Gentile sinners. But it's not the first time that he's done that. If you go back to verse 15, it talks about these Gentile sinners as well. These were non-Jews who were not keeping the law. So he refers to them as sinners. Why would he do that? Okay, now here's, here's what my study, and you can, I'd really encourage you, go into the Word, study it this week, decide in some sense for yourself what you see here, but here's the way that I read it. He's writing with a purpose of talking about this distinction between Jew and Gentile, and he has made it very clear that both are saved by grace through faith. So when he sits here talking to uh, these readers about the conversations that he and Peter were having, he refers to them as Gentile sinners. Why would he do that if he was writing to them? If I was to get up and preach a message this morning that seemed almost derogatory towards you, would you expect that I was thinking about y'all in a positive way or wanting my message to uh, to be received in a positive way? Probably not. So there might be something else at work here. Here's what I think that it is. I don't think that this is as literal as it reads on the first, you know, uh, the first read. I think that what he's doing is he's actually spending some time to make a distinction between those who are following the law and those who aren't. And he's not talking as much literally about them being sinners as he is using a common vernacular using a phrase that would have been very common, not just to Jews, but also to the Gentiles of the day. I don't think that the Gentiles actually would have had this letter read to them and had it be offensive to them, because I think that they know and understand that when a Jew is talking about sinners, it's not talking about them in a derogatory way. It's literally saying, we are Jews by birth. We followed the ceremonial, Levitical, Puritanical laws, but the Gentiles haven't. So they, they haven't been underneath this law, and so we're going to refer to them as Gentile sinners. It's not as much literal as it is talking colloquially about the people that he cares about, that he writes to. Now, how would I know this? Okay? How would I know that this is not meant to be offensive? Well, number one, I just think that there's some historical context here. But number two, what does Paul say about himself? What does Paul say about his relationship to sin? He says, I'm the chief among sinners. I'm the worst among sinners. Multiple times in the New Testament, Paul is literally telling people, there's nobody worse than me. So he's not now in the book of Galatians getting on some high horse and talking down to the people that he's ministering to. We've got to put that out of our mind. There has to be something else that he is after this morning. So when we go back to the top of verse 17, it says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. And what I think he's referring to here is what he was referring to last week when he and Peter were there with Gentiles and they were eating unclean foods. What he's literally doing is not separating himself from Gentiles. What he's doing is saying, we too, Peter, have actually been living as sinners. We've put off the law. 
We do not trust in the law for our justification. So if in this endeavor to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we are freed from the law and begin living in ways like Gentiles live, here's the charge. Here's the charge that's been brought against them. Here's where the Judaizers have taken that little piece of Christian freedom to be able to eat things and to associate with different people that are outside of this covenant group, this group of Jews, Israel. When they've done that, the Judaizers are saying something very specific to them. If we are trusting in the faith to justify us, So, we too abandon the law as the means of justification. Then, the Judaizers are charging that Christ is a servant of sin. Okay, now, now, there's a little bit of math. You have to kind of show the math here. Essentially, what this passage, I think, is saying is that if you're beginning to live out as Uh, If you're beginning to abandon the law as a means of justification and you're starting to live in Christian freedom, the Judaizers are saying, then Jesus is responsible for that. If Paul came and proclaimed this gospel of freedom to the Galatians that says that you're justified by grace through faith, not by works, so no man can boast, there's no law that you can follow that's going to justify you, then who the Judaizers want to hold responsible for this is not Paul but is Jesus. The charge that the Judaizers, if I could just put it into one sentence, is to say this. The charge is, if Paul's gospel means that you are to live eternally by faith without the law, then Paul's Jesus is leading people into sin. That's a serious charge. So if you got lost in some of just the intricacies of this text, in some of the math, just know that what the Judaizers are saying is that Paul's gospel of freedom is trying to lead people into sin because what they need to be doing is following the law. Get it? If you don't got that, we're not going to make any headway on the rest of this. So Paul isn't slamming the Gentiles as sinners. He's confronting a heresy that has infiltrated the church. That's what's going on here. So the second thing that we've got to see is Paul's rebuttal. So so Paul has referred to this charge that the Galatians would have been familiar with. That's the reason why we've had to go through all of this so far is because the Galatians were familiar with it. We, modern day, we're not familiar with what the charge was. We've clarified the charge. Now, how does Paul respond? End of verse 17. What does he say? He goes deep. He cuts deep. He says, certainly not. Now, this is one of the things that I love. Like, who, who wrote the book of Galatians? Is anybody unclear about who wrote the book of Galatians? Not anymore, right? This is like classic Paul. Paul, what he does in almost every letter is he sits there and goes through all of these questions that you could ask of our faith, and then he goes, by no means, certainly not, absolutely not. Paul is writing to us with an authoritative message, and what he wants us to know is is that Jesus Christ is not leading us towards a gospel with the law attached. Certainly not. Paul is emphatic. Why is he emphatic? Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So what these... uh, 
Judaizers were charging is that Jesus was the one leading people into sin. And what Paul does is he brings it back in and he goes, listen, I've spent my ministry telling people that they are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and and that they can't trust in the law anymore. You cannot trust in the law. And if what Paul is going to do here at this point is like lay down to these Judaizers, is say, yes, you know what, it probably would be better for these Gentile sinners to be circumcised, for them to start keeping the feasts. If he was to acquiesce to some of these demands to try to keep some form of unity in the early Christian church, you know what he would be doing? He'd be a sinner. Why? How do we know that? Because he's telling us, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, not Christ. It's not failing to keep the jots and tittles of the law or eating with Gentiles. It's not requiring circumcision. What would make him a transgressor against God is if he rebuilt a system of justification by way of the law. That's what would make him a transgressor. Just just quick point here real fast, just to kind of uh, tie this in. We today, us today, if we are to build a gospel that includes laws, rules, regulations for you to earn God's favor, what are you becoming? A transgressor. Just like Paul, he can't rebuild it. We can't build a legal law for ourselves. What would make him a transgressor against God is if he rebuilt a system where you are justified by anything other than faith. Verse 18 goes on to say this, for through the law I died to the law. Now I just want to remind us, because I've already said this before, but I've really got to go hard after this, because lest you think that Paul doesn't know the law, Lest you think that Paul like hates the law, be reminded that Paul loved the law. He talks glowingly about the law. He talks about how he himself was a Pharisee, but here's what he discovered through his love of the law. Are you ready? If Paul was to continue to get closer and closer to the law of the Lord, the more he would realize that he fell short of that standard of perfection. It's precisely Paul's love of the law that leads him to say, it is through the law that I died. That's what he's saying here in verse 18. I couldn't be good enough. I couldn't obey enough. I couldn't keep the laws of God, the commands of laws, perfectly enough. And through that, Paul says, I died. I was condemned. And what Paul is saying is, you Judaizers who have spied out our freedom in the gospel and want to enslave us, literally want to lay on top of the gospel all of these rules and regulations that will bring what? Condemnation. That'll bring death. That will kill us. Why is Paul so fervent about this? Why is he talking so full-throatedly about this? Why is, next week, is he going to say, you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you? Why is he going to use language like that? It's because he knows that these Judaizers don't just want to add something kind of minuscule to the gospel. They want to enslave and kill. That's why he's willing to get down and dirty. That's why he's willing to attack. We've used a lot of this language over the last few weeks. He's fighting. 
He's going after this. He's on the offense. He's not just on defense. He's actually going after these wicked theologies because he doesn't want to see these people that he loves brought away, killed, enslaved. What Paul is saying is, I've seen all the law And there is not justification there. You cannot be made righteous through the law. I've told everyone what I received from Jesus, that salvation is to be had by grace through faith. And I've said if I spent one more moment kind of rebuilding a doctrine of justification by the law, I would be the one in sin, not Jesus. Paul is going hard in the paint because this matters, and he's protecting the heart of the gospel. And that's where I want to ask this final question. What is the deadly purpose of the gospel? So we we know what the charge is, we know what Paul's rebuttal is, but he's going to tell us something about the deadly purpose of the gospel. Paul has a deathly serious purpose to rebuke these Judaizers because, we'll find here in just one moment, because Jesus died with a purpose. The purpose for Paul going on the attack is because precisely Jesus died with a purpose. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. I can't do anything to take away from God's sweet grace. Why? For if the righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What he's saying here is that all of this really matters, not just because uh, you aren't, if you try to earn your way to God through the law, you're not going to get there. You're going to be condemned. It's not just because he has to protect the gospel. It's because Jesus died with a purpose. At the very end of all of this, he connects it in with the purpose of Jesus' death. Isn't that interesting? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, and Jesus' death matters. If you could achieve or obey enough to be justified, if you could receive a mark of circumcision and be brought into God's family, if you could observe enough holidays in order to get into heaven, then Jesus would not have had to die. That's what Paul is saying here. Next week we'll hear this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Why? Romans 5 tells us, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his very own. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And to say that there is anything that we can add to what Jesus has already accomplished is to preach a heresy against the crucifixion of Christ. This is about to get really personal because we're not just talking about Galatians, right? We're not just talking about Paul. We're not just talking about the disciples in the early church. Jesus died for a purpose, and it was to save sinners, not just back then, but now. He died with the purpose to save sinners who couldn't possibly have saved themselves. In some ways, I wanted to just like camp on this text and spend the next like three or four weeks like just unpacking it verse by verse. 
Honestly, the truth is, is that this set of verses, we've only gone through three out of the five so far. That's all that we've done so far. And we've just barely, like, scratched the surface of the depth that is here. I want so badly to, like, just camp, but just for reasons of, like, where we're going with the rest of Galatians, we're not going to do it. But here's one thing that I found this week. It was something that I had heard a long time ago. This set of verses is John Piper's life verses. When, when he was in college, he had uh, mononucleosis, and he was laid up for three weeks, and uh, the college had like a little kind of conservatory there where, you know, he was resting and everything else. And uh, one of the mentors there on campus came, and, and as he was departing, just said, hey, hey, John, do you have a life verse? And he quoted this to him. He said, this is my life verse. And he's largely, I mean, used like his uh, years and years of preaching and constantly comes back to Galatians chapter 2, the very final verses. It's really deep. But one of the illustrations that he's used here that helps me know and understand what's going on in the churches of Galatia, it's really helpful. What he says is this. I want you to imagine that the law is like a railroad track and that every single law of the Old Testament, every uh, little ceremonial thing is a track on uh, just one tie in this track going on and on into eternity with heaven. And, And what John does with this illustration is he says, in order for you to get the gospel, what you need to know is, is that you cannot ride that train on your own. You can't ride the tracks into heaven on your own. What you need is an engine of grace provided through Jesus Christ to run you down this long track of the law. And what he says is is that you are not like this passenger that buys a ticket through your good works. What you do is you are broken and bleeding almost as though coming off of the front lines of a war. And what you need desperately more than anything is to make it onto the car to be pulled into forever glory with Jesus. And all you need to do to enter into that car, all you need to do to be coupled together with that train of grace is simply have faith. That's what Galatians is all about. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in a second, but if you want to ride the train of God's forever grace into eternity, all you have to do is believe on Jesus. That's it. And here's the thing. Here's what's just crazy. For those of us who think about like free gifts as being pretty cheap, For those of us who, like, if somebody came into this room right now and said, hey, you know, I've got a car, I want to give you my car, I'll just give it to you. I'll like sign over the title. Without seeing it, you're probably going to go, what's wrong with the car? It's not very valuable. It doesn't even have an engine. Don't even tell me. I don't want it. It's too cheap. Free stuff is just, I don't want free stuff. It's got to be unworthy. That's thinking about it wrongly. In this instance, free grace to you was bought at an infinitely costly price. The grace of Jesus Christ cost him his life. It's not the free, broken-down car. It's the forever glory that he gave his life for you to ride this track of the law into eternity by his grace. But, but here's the other side of this illustration that was so helpful for me. What he said was that what these Judaizers were doing was not trying to get on a train of grace. What they were trying to do was uproot this train track, and use it as a ladder to ascend into heaven. And what they knew 
What they knew is that what Paul was saying is that you receive this forever glory by grace through faith. And they were saying, well, what about the law? What we need to do is take this track and, uh, and extend it upwards and start using it as a ladder to climb into heaven as uh, Paul is sitting there taking these pieces of the law and saying, you can eat with Gentiles. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep the feasts. You don't have to be holy. What the Judaizers got was that when you start pulling rungs out of their ladder, the one that they were trying so hard to climb, they couldn't make it into heaven. And they knew it. Here's the other thing about the law. If you're trying to use the law as a ladder to heaven, it doesn't even matter in some sense that any of those ties are gone. Because as you climb that ladder, what you're going to find is is that Jesus flees far from you. Why? Because he gave his life for you and he loves you. In trying to pretend like you're going to add something to him, by climbing some religious law ladder, he's going to flee from you. What we need to understand is, is that if you're on this train and you pull out little ties here or there, what you're going to do is keep on going. This train of grace is going to keep pulling you into eternity. You're going to highball it all the way into heaven. It doesn't matter if there's a missing track here or there. It doesn't matter if you're beaten and broken. It doesn't matter if you just barely made it onto the train. It doesn't matter. Your destination is sure because Jesus has made it sure. That's what's going on here. That's why all of this is so very important. You cannot climb a ladder of laws into heaven and pretending like you can makes a mockery of Jesus' death. That's why Paul's going hard. That's why we're going hard. That's why City Church will resist always legalism. We will always tell you that you are saved by grace through faith and that there is no law keeping that can get you into heaven into God's forever satisfaction, into communion with God. There's nothing that can do that except for what has already been done in Jesus Christ. But here's the truth. So many of us are living to die rather than dying to live. What what do I mean by that? Here's the crazy thing about this trying to keep the law If we can be honest, there's plenty of us that are just hard at work at building and climbing these ladders of law. We're hoping to see that uh, we are doing enough to assuage God's disappointment and his anger on our our appointed day. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you see that you are trying, as verse 27 says, to gain righteousness through the law? Because if you are... If you are living to die, that is a righteousness for self. It's a focus on self. It's a religion of self. It is self-atonement. I'll climb the ladder. It is self-justification. I will make my own salvation. It is self-glorification. I will get there to heaven under my own power. It is religious and spiritual self-centeredness. And after this, the judgment. Here's the truth. What do I mean by living to die? If you're living a life where all you're trying to do 
is make things right with God by like earning his favor, every day you will get up in this just constant cycle of living life ultimately for death. And, and that's not Christian. It's not Christian. There are many. I'll take, for example, the religions of reincarnation. Every day, if you're a believer in reincarnation, you've got to get up and you've got to get to work piling good deeds on your scale so that you can achieve a better reincarnated life. So that you don't live as a bug, you live as a human and that someday you'll reach some sort of zen, some sort of nirvana. That's not Christian. Trying to live under a law for yourself, trying to heap good deeds up that you might be accepted is a religion of what? Self. It's a religion of self. And what we need to do is hear Paul's words in verse 19 through the end of this chapter. Pay very close attention to this. If you're one of those people, a person like me who's just trying to uh, do the next right thing so that I can be accepted by my fellow man and eventually by God. If you're a person that is living to die, hear these words from Paul. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Continue to hear him here. I have been crucified with Christ. Is crucifixion living or is it death? To be crucified with Christ is a death. It's not a living for death. It's a death. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with him. And to die for him and for his glory, not for myself. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives uh, within me. Jesus' death indicates uh, just how wickedly sinful we are. If you've ever wondered, like, man, I'll bet that I could probably strong-arm my way into heaven. I'll bet that I could earn my way there. I'll bet that I could follow most of these laws, and that if I miss by a smidge, God will make up the difference. Maybe even Jesus will make up the difference. Maybe you've been living a life like that, and so you've been living, ultimately, to die, Here what Paul is saying is, is that if you look at the cross of Christ and think that you have anything to add to what he has done, you're not feeling the indictment. It took the death of God himself. It took the death of God himself in Jesus on a cross to buy your ticket onto this train and to pretend like you have any part of that transaction except for just to hold on, just to embrace Jesus by faith, it's going to lead to death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So Jesus' death indicts us, but his resurrection gives us hope for new life. And then it says this, I want you to cling to this last verse and then we'll conclude. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And now, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul says. (laughs) Guys, I mean, listen up. Jesus gave his life for you. Why? Because he loves you. 
Don't take my word for it. Look here at Galatians. Look at this sweet verse. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Not for myself, but in the Son of God. In this Son of God, this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, He loved you. He loves you. Believer, beloved, He loves you. Guys, He loves you. You've heard it before. You've heard it in uh, little kids' children's songs. Jesus loves you, and here the Word of God says it to you. I love you. Jesus says, I love you. And I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you. I want you to hold on to this verse. Why? Because Christianity is not a religion of self. You must not live to die. You must die in Christ to live. You must die to the law. You must be crucified with Christ. You must take all of yourself, all of your pride, all of your arrogance, all of your self-focus, your self-attentiveness, all of that, and put it on Jesus on the cross. You have to die with Christ. You must be crucified with Christ in order to live. I was reminded as I was studying that blessed hymn that says, oh, that wonderful cross, the wonderful cross that bids me come and die to find that I might truly live. Paul is declaring that the gospel he received from Jesus proclaims, I cannot nullify the grace of God. Righteousness and justification are not found in legalism or rule-keeping. If that were possible, Jesus would not have had to die for your sins. Do not live to die. Don't just live every day following the rules so that hopefully at the end of your life you'll have appeased God in some way. Rather, die with Christ. See your sinful self crucified there with him and know that you are so loved by him that he was willing to give himself, verse 20, to give you a new identity and to give you new life forever with him. Let me pray for us that that would be true. God and Father, full of grace, Lord, we are attentive to your word this morning and we see the great declaration here that we cannot earn our way to heaven and that is such a relief because inside of our souls we know that we have tried. We've tried again and again in our addictions and our sins and our secrets. Lord, they have overcome us. There is not one of us in this room that is disciplined enough to at every moment of every day be righteous and to follow you. And that is why we had to have a Savior like Jesus. He was perfect where we are not. Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son. Lord, we pray in earnestness, Lord, that we would die to the law. Lord, we pray in earnestness that we would be crucified with Christ. Father, we pray that there would be no part of our souls that thinks that we are justified through the law. Lord, would we agree with Paul here and not try even for one second to rebuild what has been torn down in Christ. 
lest we be transgressors. Lord, but that we would take the free gift of eternal life that is given to us by faith. Lord, I pray that City Church would be a place filled with people that are not living simply to die and see if everything came out in the wash, but Lord, that we would die, that ourselves would die, that we would give ourselves and our sin over to Jesus, that we might live and that Christ might live in us. And that we would live these lives in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, knowing in the deepest parts of us that he loves us and that because he loved us, he gave himself for us. Father, I pray that you would receive our worship this morning as a testimony of faith here at City Church that we believe these things to be true and that we want and long for the Spirit to make them real in us as a community. Lord, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. And Lord, that as we seek to worship you, uh, not just for the rest of our time here, but for the rest of our lives and indeed for the rest of eternity. Lord, will your son get the glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.